this is Carla. And this is Lydia. Welcome to... No Librarians Allowed. None at all. How are you doing today, Lydia? I am angry. Uh-oh. Okay, what do you need to talk about? It is cold and dry. The days are still short. Still short, but longer. And the patriarchy still exists. Oh, yes. So today... Why don't we talk about photocopiers and murder? Oh, perfect. Those are two of my most favorite subjects. What should we start with? So you mentioned that photocopiers <laughs> have been on your mind. Yeah. And you think, geez, this is a library podcast, but it is a library technology. Why is it on your mind? So I've been thinking about the photocopier so much lately. My office is lovely and I have a great glass wall that looks into the library and usually I have my door open into the library anyway but right outside of it is the photocopier and every day all day there are people lined up to use the photocopier and for a good chunk of the day a staff member's there to help them so you know different staff rotate through but frankly I am pretty convinced that we could just have someone standing there for the whole day to help people with the photocopier it's one of those pieces of technology, much like our fax machine, where you might think like, well, why do we need this anymore? Like, we don't, we, we don't actually need this photocopier. Yeah, we could like scan it and then print it out. Our photocopier is also the scanner. So really, it's the same machine. <laughs> and what I'm noticing is like, just how it's, it's the same photocopier that I remember from my undergrad. And what we seem to be helping a lot of people with now is um, photocopying documents for visa applications or, um, so you know, like scanning passports, scanning driver's licenses, scanning healthcare cards, scanning visas from another country, scanning birth certificates from another country. So it's essential, this service of either scanning and printing or making a copy, but the design hasn't changed at all. Since the 90s, Since, probably. Yeah, and like, it's it's still, I'm, I just want to say that the photocopy scanner user interface could use an upgrade. If it's slightly complicated enough for me to sometimes question what I need to do in order to, say, get something scanned, like both sides of someone's ID onto the same piece of paper. Shouldn't be that difficult to figure out but we've had to set up a template, which I then have to share with people to say like, okay, actually you wanna go in here to get the template. And I have to click like four buttons to get to the template. So same way, like if I'm having to guide people through seven button presses to yeah. enter their email address in, oh hit okay three times, and then like explain to them that in order to scan double-sided, they have to click this teeny tiny button that says like some settings, but in an abbreviation, teeny tiny and then there's just those three options that are like two-sided book whatever like that really don't they're not totally intuitive no. and I'm helping someone maybe with low tech skills but I'm also helping someone for whom English isn't yeah. their first language and really these visual indicators in this language isn't something that you see anywhere else the thing that's on my mind is can someone not do a review of the photocopier scanner interface and make this thing more user-friendly, and something that works for people for whom English is not their first language, but also for people for whom English is their first language, like make it a little bit nicer to use and a little easier for us too. 
And then, of course, yeah, you can start talking about like, okay, well, no, you don't actually need this giant photocopier. Fine. Let's get like our nice scanning interface somehow incorporated mm. into the public PCs. I'm sure there are many workarounds, but this is the thing that we have right now. And it seems to be one of those things that's not going away Yeah, it's quickly. amazing it's not. Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, I feel like our fax machine is easier to use than our scanner <laughs> photocopier, truly, because all you have to do is, like, put it face down. Yep. I can say it in three steps. Like, put it face down, dial the number, hit the, hit the button. button. <laughs> that's it. Like, that's pretty easy. And so once it gets more complicated than that, and tr truly it shouldn't in order to have to scan and email something to yourself, but the interface just makes it so bad that, you know, it is something that people need help with. And it's just, it shouldn't be in 2019. It's funny, when I was at your branch, I was not even kind of a regular staff member and I was doing a tangential, you know, setting up a piece of technology. But I got asked, please come over and help me. Mm -hmm. And it brought me back to those days. And it's true, I, I think of the emotion that um, these users bring because likely they are anxious they need to meet a deadline they're dealing with very sensitive private data that all of a sudden like the stranger potentially could peek at they are worried that they're going to make a mistake and lose data this thing is frustrating like there's the, the emotion side but then the technology side this thing is bulky surely we could make buttons larger label them put some pictures. Where's the factory? Where's the office who's like the head of mm -hmm. all photo photocopiers in North America? And who are the people working there? And what, are they, what is their day like? We also see the repair person quite often with our photocopier. Like, do they have a design department? Are they doing like R&D on the photocopier? Or are they like slowly waiting for it to be phased out? Like, I don't know. But so people still, they have this need and it could be made much easier for them. But I feel like this is one element of technology that's still critical to public needs in the library that has kind of been overlooked from a UX perspective. Above me, I have a service design doing book, Ooh. and there's all the innovation that happens around like social initiatives and government processes. But here's no. a basic thing that happens. Fix the damn photocopier. <laughs> yeah, in every library probably yeah. around North America. I also wonder, when was the time that we introduced them to libraries, all right? Like, must have been around the 70s when this kind of... Like, it's basic OCR, right? It's optical reading. You know, why is it in libraries? Maybe back in the day, some of this was taken care of, say, at the government office, right? So there are central, like, federal building where maybe someone did that for you. So maybe that work, you know, maybe was invisible or uh, mediated to some degree. Now it's offloaded to you know, the users themselves who are struggling uh, with literacy and, like, adjusting to the country to begin with. So that's also a choice, right, and which is what this book is teaching me, like intentionality. And part of design is saying yes to some things and no to others, which is clear you're identifying in the interface. It's not neutral. It's someone approved it, and it went ahead and got produced. Time for a reboot. It's funny how you say you can have a person standing there all day, very much like a genius bar at uh, Apple stores, right? Or, you know, like checkout clerks or mm -hmm. whatever. The fact that it's so um, 
in demand and like nonstop. It, like it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, how much labor the library is picking up for whoever makes the photocopiers themselves. Like we are once again. Remember we talked Ooh. about ebooks. How much free mm -hmm. labor yeah. the libraries are doing for a crappy design of ebooks. Similarly with this technology, they should be paying us. Totally. Definitely. Where are those royalties at? <laughs> And I guess, to quote Lenin, what is to be done? What are we going to do about the photocopier? Do people, um, like, do patrons themselves, you know, give any kind of feedback? Or, or is, is the data that you're gathering more observational, like you can see it all? There's nothing to say. Um, people are very happy when they get their documents yeah. scanned or photocopied properly and when you're there to help them. You definitely can sense the frustration. Anytime I'm walking past the photocopier, I will stop in and kind of check in and make sure that they're good and they know what they're doing. Lots of times they don't. And I don't know how long they've been standing there trying to push the buttons and maybe lose coins or whatever. Like, this is also a, something that they're giving money for, yeah. for cost recovery. So, you know, the stakes are also a little bit higher and it's important to be able to do it right. So there's an extra level of angst. It's amazing how much people will put up with bad design ultimately, right? Like people will suffer through it. I firmly think that, well, we, we have a lot to learn from design, but also obviously not everything has been solved or improved, right? Mm -hmm. Given prevalence of talk of, oh, innovation and disrupting. We need to disrupt freaking photocopiers. Yeah, they need your help. I feel for you. The next design whatever those are called. What are those like design challenge? Yeah. 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 The next hackathon will be about photocopy design. What's rallying you up this week, Lydia? Besides bad photocopier design. Well, I guess the reason I bring up Lennon <laughs> is because um, I think there's been talk on Twitter and certainly it's been on my mind uh, what I'm calling the continuum of action, right? And we sort of touched on it last time when we had guests about what does action look like in libraries? So this week, uh, the local library school hosted a student-led conference and I was picking up on a theme of this idea of to what degree is action becoming a professional, I don't know, necessity or... or we're moving away from this idea that libraries are neutral to the fact that, you know, we have to commit to some things and hold up social justice values and defend, you know, safety and human mm -hmm. rights of our users. So similarly, beyond just providing collections and organizing, which is what we do, how much responsibility do we have to act and what does action look like, whether it's in our daily work or as a profession more, more largely? And... I kind of joke that uh, the continuum of that action so far in my very naive understanding is, on one hand, discourse, so talking, engaging, critique, reflection, which is what you know, was proposed by students and attendees of the conference. Then there's strikes, so labor, organizing, and often strike is the most obvious kind of demonstration of, of that action. And then on the end is murder. <laughs> <laughs> the most violent. From outburst. discourse to murder. 
I suppose Zizek would also say that, you know, you, he, he would say you should have an outburst of violence, but you should direct it at yourself. The one I'm talking about is an external outward burst of violence. <laughs> and I've never really connected libraries to murder, but if we're going to talk about strikes for a second, I guess I got thinking there's some competing theories of like who ended the government shutdown in the U.S., right? Mm. And some said it was Nancy Pelosi, and some said it was... Oh, and at LaGuardia, the, uh, the TSA workers, the air traffic controllers. Yes. Yeah. But ultimately, the people who make this the daily operation of movement, there's a lot of labor that makes travel happen every day, and mm -hmm. it's amazing. So if one of those pieces falls out of place, it affects thousands, if not millions, of people. And we've seen a few news about disruption with, like, with drones in um, Gatwick Airport. And, of course, I witnessed sort of the government shutdown or the furlough of, of workers uh, traveling through U.S. airports. And you do all of a sudden realize just how much people power, like how much work goes into it every day. So on that note, I started thinking, okay, so what does striking look like for libraries? Beyond, obviously, libraries shutting down and, you know, we haven't had kind of public library strikes in Canada for a while, but that was a thing, right? Certainly in the 60s and 70s, there were all kinds of strikes um, across Canada. Beyond sort of the entire library shutting down and, you know, workers sort of withholding their labor and services, um, we could also think about it as on the collection side, right? So if libraries are pretty vocal about how much it costs, for example, to buy digital material and e-books. And we know like e-streaming is, is, is pricey, right? Because the vendors set those costs. But what if all libraries across Canada said, no, actually, we're not going to commit to this. We, we just can't offer it or, or strategically say we won't. What will happen across Canada to all those CBC listeners who <laughs> write to Michael and write? How much outrage will be directed at libraries themselves versus the vendors versus maybe larger society? This week I'm feeling spunky, <laughs> but what would happen in Canadian society? So what do you think? Can you imagine libraries withholding collections? You know, it's interesting to me because I was at a mall uh, last night and the young woman who is helping me in the store asked what I did, and I said I was a librarian, and she was like, oh, which library? And I told her, and she said, you know, my boyfriend really got me turned on to the audiobooks. I listened to this one about Queen Elizabeth, and it took me like three months, but it was so good. And so I think that libraries look at those as opportunities to connect with the new users, and that's the biggest fear, right, is not keeping up with the times and the idea that we would be irrelevant. Right. But... If that is a draw, and we know that it's a success, and we know that it is making the library important in many people's lives, and we do know that the library, or libraries generally rank favorably amongst people in public mind, then if we did take a stance and made it palatable, made it kind of sexy, if we made it energizing, if we made it a campaign that really looked good and sounded good and people understood. I don't know. I feel like there's a couple of things that we would have to consider. One would be the public. One would be what the reaction of vendors would be. I know that I've heard people argue that one of the reasons that Amazon doesn't provide 
Kindle for Canadian libraries mm -hmm. is that the market isn't worth it. Like, we don't have big enough clout with Amazon. The buying power, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if that's the case or what numbers would have to be kind of crunched for that. Would it have to be bigger? Would it have to be bigger than just Canada to actually have an impact on, on those companies? Because I'm assuming it's pervasive across North America. Like, everyone is using the same five or whatever yeah. with academic libraries, too. Like, we know the top ones there. They are just... All I can picture is giant mammoths right now. The <laughs> they are mammoths. The publishers, you mean? The publishers and the and the distributors. Right. Um, sometimes now the same, right? Right. So thinking from the public side, so there has been a campaign launched about the cost. Mm -hmm. Is that all that's needed right. to change the minds? Like, yeah. is the fiscal argument the one that needs to be made, or is it something else? Is the fiscal argument good enough? Like, is that a big enough threat for the distributors, for the publishers, for the vendors from Canadian libraries if they were to stand together. And then, like, what about an ideological argument? So often with open access journals, that's something in an academic context, at least. So in Canada, you know, publicly funded universities, that research should be made available to the public that has essentially paid for it. That is an ideological argument that feeds into open access. And... So far, that hasn't had as much clout as needing to continue to work in the academic system and get certain P factors and get certain publish in certain journals in order to get tenure and make sure you're okay yes. as an academic in a very challenging environment. So, I don't know. Your comment about if the fiscal argument is good enough. So on one hand, we could say, you know, reading fiction or listening to audiobooks or enjoying media is valuable in and of itself, right? It supports development, creativity, community. Like, it could argue it's a human right to have access to creativity and ideas. I've seen some coverage in The Guardian about um, these arguments for, for climate change and how we think about the environment. And sadly, some people say that talking about the value of sea lions on a beach or the importance of water as a good, as an inherent right and necessity for human beings uh, is not working or is not good enough. And really, we should be quantifying the value of the iceberg mm -hmm. or the seal pup or... <laughs> or the mountain and converting it to monetary terms to say the loss of this river results in this many millions of dollars. And I mean, I have a problem with that. It takes that idea of exchange as the fundamental relationship of understanding what we do on earth. And I think that's wrong. And frankly, we only have one Earth. So I know why these arguments are made in The Guardian, because ultimately they're saying, well, those who have the power, and so who, who does have the power? Those mm -hmm. guys who meet at Davos will not respond to our claims for children need good drinking water, and we all need to live in an environment that's not a soup. And they'll only respond to things... Here's the yes. bottom line. Always the dollar value. But will they, though? Uh-oh, now we're going to go on a climate change rant. So I believe that the only reason that some people can just continue on, as they have done, especially those who are 
in positions of power and who are making money and who are profiting off of like non-renewable energies and just stuff that is bad <laughs> for the environment because it's only impacting their life. That's all that is important. So it's this kind of American ideal of individuality. I will get what I deserve. And so that's really all there is to it. It doesn't matter what else is happening, what's happening in a different country, what's going to be happening 40 years from now, which is a really hard thing to talk about because living in a resource-rich province, which is rich in fossil fuels, that makes a lot of our economy run. Many people I know are working in this industry. What do they do? Yeah, so I think there are some people who just don't give a shit. And it's, it's about them, and it's about them making the money, and that's all. That's all they care about. Speaking of The Guardian, there was also an article, though, about the success of banning CFCs mm. and how what the difference is between that and just kind of talking about global warming overall. And the idea was like, okay, in the 70s or whatever, they discovered a hole over the Antarctic. Right. And they were like, all right, guys, like here is one legit hole. Here is a visible thing that everybody can see. We can see that like, can't deny there's a hole there. I mean, I'm sure some people still denied it, but like, here's a hole getting bigger. Ice is getting smaller. Greenhouse gases are bad. Here's what's contributing to it. It was so concrete. Mm. Part of it was that concreteness of like, here's this thing. Yeah. Here's what's causing it. How are we going to fix this hole? You know, and you can imagine like the like fix this hole song, <laughs> like live aid, whatever, you know, like. So the idea that it's like this one concrete thing right. as opposed to global warming, which is just like. Too nebulous. Everything is fucked. Like. Every aspect connects to another aspect. Where do you start? Who has to do it? Like, what is it going to even look like to reduce emissions? Like, should we be taking a way more radical approach and just being like, you know what, fossil fuels, like, you're done. Yeah. You know, like, we have other technology. You guys are shut down. We're taking your money. We're going to put it into building other stuff. Like, that's just what's going to happen right now. Because otherwise, we're all dead. And truly, that is what's going to happen. But what's it going to take? What is the argument that gets people to be on board with that? Is it money? Is it an ideology? Is it murder? At what point does it come to that? I think when people in BC have lost their homes and half of BC will burn, when California is dry, I am waiting for the moment when Florida is underwater and good chunks of the East Coast, when migration happens... <laughs> This is really dark. And already, like we know, well, in the U.S., I mean, I traveled to the U.S. like yeah. two weeks ago. People are sleeping on the street. They are hungry. And the supposed middle class is barely getting by, which is why the, uh, the government shutdown has revealed the veneer of the so-called middle class and the fact that there is no such thing. And when people are hungry and mad and they realize that they're not alone. Hungry and mad and they move and they encroach on someone else's resources so like Europe refugee crisis right now happening and each of those countries are I mean dealing with it in different ways but one of the responses is rise of the right and the rise of turning against one another so that's also something that could the states divides itself so to bring it back to that <laughs> continuum of action I appreciated talking this out with a friend and colleague who 
smartly pointed to, for example, the media wave and the supposed capture of imagination that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seems to have currently in that she is able to grasp the rhetorical power, right? The power of discourse, talking. She is one young woman in Congress. She is not the CEO. She's not in Davos. She's a single individual, a representative of a district. But she is in front of microphones a lot. She's on social media. She gets a lot of coverage. And she's talking about these ideas. And I think the reason why people are responding to her is that she's talking about real things, which is poverty, hunger, financial crisis, homelessness, health care. For her to say, I reject the idea that single-payer health care is not possible. <laughs> yeah, it's 2019. On one hand, we have... Drones that deliver pizza, we have photocopiers that have terrible user interfaces, and we have supposedly the wealthiest country who can't even grasp the idea that like healthcare for people is a thing. You can't like idealize your way out of a situation that she is is sort of throwing in people's faces and saying, Look, this is real. So I guess what I'm saying is I appreciate, you know, while I was skeptical of this idea of like, so where do libraries fit in? And it's true, we're not picketing, we're not spending our non-working hours, um, you know, protesting or building homes for <laughs> Habitat for Humanity. We're not cleaning up beaches where the seals are. So it's true, what, what do we do? We offer information and we, we do provide spaces, but the talking and the reading and the thinking, which is what we're part of, right? We're is part of this continuum and it does relate to action it can result in strikes and lenin did capture the imagination of the masses and and the anger and the and the hunger so i guess it relates on the one hand are we saying that there's like discourse and ideas and information yes. and on the other hand there is action or this is a you've described it as a continuum mm. Explain to me what's important about that continuum as opposed to here's one thing, here's the other thing. What makes it a continuum? I don't know why I framed it that way, I guess. I suppose you could look at them as degrees of action, that thinking and writing, what we're doing in itself is doing something, right? It's There is almost no way to non-act in the world and the non-action in itself is an action, very much like you know, people will say like, oh, I don't care about what I wear, there's no message, but that in itself is a message. So in other words, you can't escape decisions. I love Camus, to breathe is to judge. You do exist on this earth and what you do says something to someone and collectively kind of adds up. So I suppose you could look at these, you know, the three things that I've talked about, maybe there's some in between, I don't know, but as independent, so either or, or are they connected? And, and maybe, I guess, me thinking out loud of through OAC and through Lenin in that they relate. Movement, so social movement, is it like a river that kind of pools and then becomes a tide, right? So I think they are related. And same with strikes. Like once you do take that line and you, you know, withhold your labor and, you know, we talked about having picket signs ready in, in your car. Ro violence does erupt, right? It's, it's also a form of action and like it's visible. So I don't know if it matters to frame it as a continuum, but maybe by next episode I'll have more coherence. <laughs> well, I like the idea of the continuum because I think I had framed it as an either-or. Mm. And there are, there are obviously larger actions, mm. but there are lots of things along the way to that. Yeah. And 
I also don't know that I agree that a movement is a surprise. I think things can happen really quickly, mm. but I don't think anything comes out of nowhere. Mm. I suppose it's recognizing that relationships, so it's true, all of us live individualized, but we also do form collectives, right? And so often the argument in our society is, well, what did you do? How many houses did you build? Mm -hmm. Did you recycle? And it's true individually, me and you and our neighbors, we can do some things, but they're not really going to disrupt Davos. <laughs> but there's a heck ton of us too. So we're both individuals and groups. And so it, it's hard for us. I think now, you know, we talked about the migration through Europe. Unfortunately, some people respond to the wrong side of it. They see it as, you know, in terms of race and in terms of, you know, immigrants taking over our jobs rather than, like, why are people being forced to move? Nobody wants to be a refugee. Stepping back and seeing kind of that larger trend. This is what 21st century life is like in that we have the tools to think of ourselves, humanity, on that global scale that I think we, we didn't really think about even 100 years ago. So that those larger movements, because literally we see boatloads of people move to Europe and, and or die along the way, we need to think about how do we live together on the whole global scale. Because the climate change and then algorithms, spying, bioengineering, all of these things actually affect pretty much everybody. It's not like we can say, oh, it's just in Canada, it's just in Europe. So living together as a humanity, that's like huge and hard. So collectives and individuals, how do we do that? Surely someone has answers. <laughs> if only we could get a less expensive audiobook to tell us. <laughs> we be able to find the answer somewhere. Whoa, I don't know how we got here. Me neither. Somehow climate change came up and then all and bets are e -books. off. Climate change and ebooks, man. Where I started thinking about strikes in action, or I reread Lisa Slanowski's article on effective labor in libraries, which is this idea that do you ever have this feeling? What did I do today? Every day, literally every day. People say, oh, you're a librarian. Do you read books all day? And you're like, nah. But then you, you take a pause and you're like, but what is it that I do here? And some days it feels so good to say, yeah, I wrote a report or I did a presentation. And you think this is it? Um, so this idea that a lot of that work is you know, behind the scenes, it's organizing and it's also emotional. We're managing the feelings of those immigrant users who need that form in order to progress to the next stage of their maybe experience in Canada or get the job. No one can like point to that moment and say, there it is, it happened, but it takes place. And again, it adds up. So Lisa argues, what is to be done? So one of them is to recognize that labor, the fact it's work, it's energy, and sometimes it makes us frustrated and like we take it home and to recognize it in others and, and like how do we build that in our organizations maintainers of the year right the the worker of the year who just like did the thing every day and they continue to make it happen and then the other thing she says is to resist market logic through things like civic engagement dissent and non-efficiency i agree with that we are so obsessed with making things efficient you know, story times are not efficient, <laughs> but we value them because we know kids will grow up 
into nice social creatures and they will enjoy story time and each other and maybe we'll make a world a better place, all those you know, cheery things. Like They're not efficient things, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about that in the past. So same with civic engagement. It's not profitable to have public debates in the library, but we do it. What was the third thing? Dissent. Dissent. That's really hard, but Tony Samick, the head of the library school, talked about in the 70s, libraries being much more involved in kind of the sites for radical thought. And, you know, we, we've had those discussions about like hosting controversial speakers versus actively saying, you know what, we're going to have a space to discuss an issue that goes against the, the dominant what you see on CBC News or we're going to have that safe space for discussion. It's going to be unpopular or challenging. You're not buying her thing? No, I'm just having this thought right now. So in the 70s, supporting radical thought, being anti-censorship, being pro-free speech, this idea of neutrality kind of coming up around the same time. How easy was it to be a librarian and to be able to be considered radical because you are the free speech that you're getting behind are basically socialist ideals. So in the 70s, if you are fighting to have certain works made available to people, if you are saying that certain speakers should be allowed, are they leftist speakers? Is it a leftist ideal? Is it a democratic ideal? Is it, for example, making sure that gay literature or erotica is available? Yeah. That's kind of what it was about. Yeah, civil rights, right? It was about civil rights. So, of course you can say, being a professional in that era, we fought for free speech. We, Because that's what was being censored. Mm. Flip it to 2019, you have white nationalists, you have the KKK, you have all of these people. And so what you're fighting for, it's a lot harder and like to say, I don't know about this. It should be so obvious that because of the ideological climate in both of these times, of course that's what that generation would have been feeling about free speech, about right. censorship. And of course now that's being questioned. Do you think Lisa's off base or, or librarianship itself has changed? I think librarianship itself has changed because of the political social climate that we're in now. And I'm assuming oh, it will continue to change. Absolutely. And so what we have been able to kind of fight for or fight against in the past may have to change. And the language that we use around it may have to change. But just her idea of dissent, that's so interesting to me. That's true. So you're right. So to dissent implies that you need something to dissent against, to go against. Mm -hmm. And what we consider mainstream in some ways has flipped over. You're right. Just before you got here, I was listening to... <laughs> there I go. It wouldn't be an episode without me mentioning Zizek twice, but <laughs> looking at this paranoia or discourse of fake news, many things that get called fake news are not truly fake news. It's just people who want a common lie. They want to return to a past that where they felt comfortable. And really, who that would be is people who had power, right? And so as a result, they're using the language of fake news and this global kind of disturbance of what is truth and anything goes. They're co-opting it for their needs to say, hey, well, look, everything's fake, so why don't we just go back to the times where we had to say 
this is correct, this is moral, this is the order, the social order. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that, you know, that was about labor and like emotions and, and like burying shit. But think about, think about the emotional labor that this question and this debate around neutrality has had for, right. for librarians. Not just the emotional labor, but impacting people's work, impacting people's professional their association with professional organizations, wondering how to have those conversations either in a school with supervisors, with their colleagues, with the public, and having this be a place of disagreement and where some people do feel like they need to dissent. Like that is incredible emotional labor that is happening at this moment around this issue. Yeah, like it's is real in some ways nothing has changed in terms of librarianship but but the reality and kind of the complexity has changed yeah so i'm i'm just amazed that students are able to articulate it and i feel for them because i also know that how do you actually do that on the job it's not easy and then thinking about who they're going to be working with so you mentioned that some person stood up and said like isn't that interesting you know that we're talking about all of this because back in my day at library school all we were talking about was neutrality and neutrality was the thing that we all fought for in some sense how easy to fight for neutrality Mm. how easy that that's the platform to say everybody everything comforting isn't it, it is comforting but it's also like it's it's the clash between like third wave fourth wave feminism and second wave feminism it's yeah. the idea of recognizing intersectionality the idea that yeah within the women's rights movement there are people who have more privilege than other people and lots of the people who have more privilege you know white women who are in positions of power who are in the senate who are ceos of companies have the advantage for various socioeconomic political reasons over certain others in that same movement, and that has to be recognized. In LGBTQ communities, you know, the idea that two gay men who get married, that's the end. We can stop talking about it. You know, we can stop talking about any other need to recognize certain rights Uh. or whatever, like, doesn't go far enough to now recognize the other voices that are missing in that spectrum and the, and the diversity that's present behind that. If that's the time that they are coming into place and a lot of those people are in manager roles, they're in leadership positions, that's the time and the place that they came to be. Mm. And so obviously that's, that's the value that they're coming out of. It's the ethic that they're mm. bringing forward. And that's going to naturally clash against students who were raised in this time or people who are becoming young professionals now and have different experiences, have different social, political, economic climate that they're growing up in, a different economy that they're in, uh, different access to communications, seeing different perspectives. All of that contributes to the different like zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, and it is gonna be dissent. Some people are gonna have to make difficult choices and have extremely difficult conversations there's a lot of emotional labor that happens even just around this particular conversation. Yeah, that's true. In North America, we put such a focus on this idea of rights, whereas I feel like if we could characterize what's happening now, at least in my mind, it's almost like the focus on responsibilities, right? So on one hand, yeah, all of us, we recognize that there's rights and things that we should have access to. Those are our freedoms. But there's also the other side, which is the responsibility. And, and I see that a lot in the highlighting and hopefully reading and celebrating like indigenous voices. We live in society and therefore we're bound to other people. And same with feminism, recognizing that 
The other side of rights is what do I owe to other people? What is it that I do on earth? Yeah, ultimately, what is my responsibility and collectively too? So I think that's kind of cool. And yeah, sometimes I feel like living in 21st century is markedly like it's materially different than the 70s. So everyone just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe and listen to each other. I mean, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but I know that I've also had difficult conversations that haven't seemed to go very far with people of that generation and in libraries, and it's disappointing. And it is extremely emotional on both sides. And so I'm hoping that there are continued opportunities and more opportunities to try and work together on something that seems to be a growing divide. But are we just moving further down the spectrum? Should we be? Working together is hard. It's much easier to work with those with whom you agree, who share the same kind of backgrounds. And who have done excellent work. How to move forward and evolve while hopefully still recognizing the great work that other people have done. But also for those people who did that work to recognize that that work was still good, but maybe things do need to change. So on both sides, how do you reconcile and move forward? How do you respect and keep going? Again, I think surely we have so much to learn from Indigenous thinkers because there seems to be just so much more of a tradition and practice of this. So yeah, these this is a very good question, Carla. Why don't we touch on that in future episodes because (laughs) I don't know that that's really hard yeah but another little spot on that continuum ring a little action that can be taken oi photocopiers global warming (laughs) the 70s (laughs) you never know you never know yeah well we will have uh, more guests in this season so stay tuned Thank you for sticking with us through this intense conversation. Or if it's just Lydia and I left, thank you, Lydia, for your thoughts, as always. (laughs) Anytime. Okay. Have a good day, everyone. We'll see you next time.